The ability to have a voice and to give back has been something very special for, for the Garvey family. And we'll continue to do that. And I think to be able to affect lives and to be able to get people to collaborate, to stand up and make a difference, everybody can, I think is something that's part of my DNA now. Hey, it's your friend Jason Mraz, the official spokesperson of the Good Tidings Foundation. And what an honor it is. On behalf of Good Tidings Foundation, we welcome you to the fourth season of the Good Tidings podcast that highlights the goodness in people. This episode is proudly sponsored by the San Francisco Giants. You can go to sfgiants.com for updates on the Giants and information on game tickets, special events, and promotions for the 2023 season. And now, enjoy the podcast. Personally, it is a real treat to have this month's guest on the Good Tidings podcast. So, Steve Garvey, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Finally. I got way late at the San Francisco airport uh, last week. <laughs> so, oh well. Yeah, it's all good. Tonight. So, I do want to start out with a couple of baseball questions in looking at your bio, it seemed you were destined to be a Dodger. Share with us a little bit about moving from New York to Florida, what your dad did, and becoming that bat boy. Well, mom and dad were New Yorkers, Long Islanders, and they married right after the war. And then 1948, my mother's father had this great gas station out on the island on Route 27 that went out to the Hamptons. And it was a late January evening and cold and snowy and Grandpa had up to his elbows in Greece, and his best customer came in and said, Hey, Joe, I got this motel in Tampa, Florida. Why don't you get out of here, and let's trade the motel for the gas station. And one of those moments, weak moments, my grandfather looked at him and said, Harry, you got it. And called my grandmother up and said, Call Joe and Millie, and we're all going down to Florida, which was my <laughs> mom and dad. So obviously, there was something wrong with the story, because the motel was about three miles off the main road that went up to New York, and there were three... At 11 little cottages, and it was not location, location, location. So they managed it for about a year. Something happened on the way down to New York, and I was born in December of 48. But mom and dad, you know, stayed in Tampa. Dad became a Greyhound bus driver. And then at the end of March of 1956, spring training time, my dad came home and said, do you want to skip school no more? And I said, hi, dad, you never said that. So I got a charter to take the Brooklyn Dodgers from the Tampa airport to play the New York Yankees in St. Petersburg in the exhibition game. So dad had been a Dodger fan. Mom was a Yankee fan. She gloated a lot back then. But this was the spring after 55 when the Dodgers finally beat the Yankees. So that day I got to Bat Boy and sit next to Hodges and Reese and Ferrillo and Snyder. And Jackie Robinson wasn't looking. He went to sit down. He sat on my lap and he goes, oh, my gosh, son, you okay? And I'm thinking, show and tell Monday. Nobody's going to believe this. And, uh, <laughs> oh, goodness. And that day, you know, it was Mickey Mantle and Elston Howard and Scourin and all the great Yankees. And I fell in love with the game. And they liked my dad. So probably three or four days during spring training for the next seven or eight years, I got a chance to bat boy for my idols and grow up with the, the boys of summer from Brooklyn to L.A. The Dodgers' great first baseman, Gil Hodges, asked the young boy if he would like to play catch with him. Well, if the tale of this lucky youngster's excellent day of hooky ended at this point, it would still be a remarkable story, but we're barely past chapter one. 
You see, this seven-year-old boy would get the opportunity to serve as one of the Dodgers' spring training bat boys for the next six to seven years. And then, on June the 6th, 1968, he would be drafted by the Dodgers. Of course, not every player drafted by a baseball team makes it to the major leagues, but this young man did. He'd make his debut September the 1st, 1969, against the New York Mets. The Mets were managed that year by the Dodger who 13 years earlier asked the kid if he wanted to play catch with him. Mm-hmm, Gil Hodges. Such a great story. And out of high school, you were quite a player, too, before college and, and were drafted in the third round. But you decided to go to Michigan State and you played baseball and football. Was there ever a thought of playing football after college? Well, that's very kind of you. There's not a big demand for slow cornerbacks, but I had good quickness. So I went there as a quarterback and they had some injuries to defensive backs. And Duffy Darty, the great old coach, said, anybody play defense here in high school? And I yeah. So he said, play some right corner this afternoon, Garvey. And, you know, I intercepted a pass and used my quarterback knowledge and made some tackles. And that was the beginning of me switching to play cornerback and play two years as a defensive back. And look back now, and I think it was really important in my development because I wanted to play two sports, wanted to go to college and to be able to go to a great institution like Michigan State playing Big Ten football. I think balanced me out as an athlete. And we say nowadays, have your kids play a variety of sports. Each one has their inherent skills and thinking process and personal development. It'll make make your children, boys and girls, better athletes. Yeah. I want to talk about the your consecutive game streak, which is a National League record that really will never be broken. 1,207 games was like seven years of playing the game. You never missed a game. At what point were you, one, aware of a streak? And did you just feel like it's my job to come to the ballpark every day and, and play the position? Absolutely. And I'm the ambassador this year to Lou Gehrig Day. It's really the first of the Lou Gehrig Days. It was going to start in 2020, but COVID delayed it. And it's something I take very personally. I'm very honored. I received the Phi Delta Theta Lou Gehrig Award back in 1984. But growing up as a bat boy, I wanted to learn about baseball and these teams. And I, one of my first books that I really read from cover to cover was the Lou Gehrig story and read about this wonderful gentleman on and off the field, but a ferocious, dedicated player, a great sportsman, consummate Catholic and family man. And of course, the streak that defined him. And then ALS, which unfortunately came down with and in 1936 and subsequently passed away in, I believe, 38. So it was it was something, streaks, you just don't say, I'm going to go start a streak. <laughs> you have to, first of all, be good enough to start and play and be on good teams and so forth. So by 1975, our infield had come together for three years. We had gone to the World Series against the A's in 74, and all of a sudden played the whole season, the next year, next year, and then Major League Baseball starts keeping track at about 700, so I started working working up the ladder there, and by the beginning of 1983, I was creeping up to where I was going to break the National League record, and subsequently did that, and then a few months later, I slid into home plate and tore my thumb, and some things you control, some things you can't. I always said streaks are God's in God's hand, but I took a lot of pride in it. 
you play with migraine headaches and pulled hamstrings and hyperextended elbow and hairline fracture of the finger. And But you go out, if you physically can, you feel you can compete, uh, and you do it for the game. You do it for the fans. You do it for your teammates. You, you try to set an example and be a leader. And, and when it was all said and done, and over the years, I've had a chance to work with the great, wonderful people at ALS and do advocacy days in Washington. But it's one of the things I take extreme pride in was the ability to go out and have the streak is in God's hands. What you do with it is in your hands. And I've been able to take that and I think in many ways support the men and women who have ALS and those that are trying to find a cure. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I grew up in Southern California listening to Vin Scully, like many, many people. And over those years, that infield you mentioned of you and Say, Lopes, and Russell from June 23rd of 73 all the way through the 81 World Series, that's another record you're part of that never will be broken. How special was that chemistry to you and helping with the streak and just the Dodger success during that window? Well, towards the end of the of the 60s, the Dodgers were a very mediocre team. Kofax and Drysdale had left and and uh, those boys of summer that had come from Brooklyn to L.A. were now gone. And the 68 draft arguably is the greatest draft in history. We had nine players that played over 10 years in the major leagues. And, and you can imagine 10,000 games and hundreds of home runs and so forth. And Tommy Lasorda managing us in the minors and then the majors when the great Walt Olson stepped down. But, you know, Davey Lopes and Billy Russell were excellent center fielders. But one of the great things the Dodger organization was known for was developing players and and taking them as athletes and putting them in positions where they could succeed and where their needs were. So all of a sudden, Billy ends up at short, Davey ends up at second, Ron's at third in the beginning of 1973. And I, unfortunately, was a wild-armed third baseman. I had a shoulder separation playing football at Michigan State my last year. So if I didn't have to take my time, if I if I had to really hurry, I was fine. But if I took my time, you know, I'd airmail those balls into the stands. So I was a guy without a position. And then Walt Austin still had faith in me. And I started pinch hitting. And then June 23rd of 73, a doubleheader. We've been struggling against left-handed pitching. The Reds, Freddie Norman, little lefty, was was uh, shutting us down and Austin said, pitch hit for the pitcher. And I got one of the two hits and I'm sitting in my locker between games. And all of a sudden they see Walt start to walk by and he stops and he looks at me. He said, you ever play first? And I said, sure. I played one game in Little League and one game in AAA, but I wasn't going to tell him. And he said, well, get a glove and play first tonight. You know, we're struggling against the lefties. They're throwing another one and don't trip over the bat. So I uh, got the bat boy and borrowed a glove and went out and tossed for a few minutes to get used to the glove. And and lo and behold, the first inning, a ball's hit in the hole to Billy, and and he throws one in the dirt. I dig it out. I thought, geez, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Lord. <laughs> and uh, get a double. You know, I was batting, I think, six or seven, drove in a run. And then a couple innings later, Davey, bare hands the ball, throws it after come off the bag, and I jump up. And I don't know, instinctively, I just – Whirled around and tagged the runner in the helmet and kept the ball and we got him out. I'm thinking, my Lord, this is divine now. And got another hit and uh, double and uh, we win the game. And you're sitting in my locker in those days, you know, when everything comes together. Now, you've had a project that's been tremendously successful, like we had a couple weeks ago. And just kind of proud of all the hard work. I was going out at 2.30 every day. 
And all of a sudden, I look, and it's Alston walking by again. He had to go to his office down the way. And he hasn't stopped, but, but we hear, you're in there tomorrow. And I looked at Steve Yeager, and I said, is he talking to you, Yeager? Me? He said, I think he's talking to you. And the next day, I started, and that was the beginning, really, that Saturday night of, say, Russell Lopes and myself. And on June 23rd, next month, we're going to be honored our 50th anniversary of the longest running infield in history and arguably the greatest. Yeah, that's so well said. So, okay, so when you're sitting on your back patio, sipping some iced tea, reflecting on your career, what are you personally most proud of or the one that says to you, boy, that was special? Would it be the consecutive game streak, your MVP award, your 10 All-Star games, your four gold gloves, being a world champion, or the Roberto Clemente and Lou Gehrig Awards? Well, you know, it's it's tough to pick one, but I will say, I've been asked this question, if you play a team sport to win the, the world championship or Stanley Cup or whatever is the ultimate, because you're doing it together as a team. And game six, 1981 at Yankee Stadium, and we had been beaten by the Yankees in 77, 78 in, in great games. Yankees-Dodgers was always the best. And there's two out, bottom of the ninth. We got a comfortable lead. Reggie Jackson's at first. Of course, he'd hit the three home runs in 77 to end that uh, series. And he pats me on the behind. He says, garbage, your turn. And the next pitch goes up to center field, and Kenny Landros squeezes it. You know, And then it's the obligatory rush to the mound. And Steve Yeager gets there and picks up Steve Howe, and I come running in in the highest vertical I ever had, probably about eight or nine inches. There's a great picture of me on top at the moment, the consummate moment of all those days for me hitting little grapefruits in the backyard growing up in Florida and the Little League and Pony League and Babe Ruth and and dreaming about maybe someday being a Major League Baseball player like my idols, the Dodgers. and and then being a world champion. So that's the ultimate for a team sport. I think what defined my compassion and love for the game was the consecutive game streak, you know, going out there seven and a half years when I easily could have sat out numerous times, but I, I felt the obligation of the fans and through the grace of God lasted that long and still the National League record. But to be also a complete player, winning the gold gloves and winning the MVP and all the offensive things, so, you know, it's been my life. It'll continue to be my life. And it's been a wonderful legacy that my philosophy is life is God's gift to us. What we do it is our gift to him. So I will continue to give back and, and continue to, to keep on that path to celebrating the national pastime and helping youth fall in love with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I know your day will come for Cooperstown. I got to believe, hopefully, there's these new committees. The new era committee is going to happen probably next year, and it'll be so well-deserved. Do you think about that at all, going into the hall? Well, you know, it's been, a, it's been a long journey on that path that I've been on the exit road, you know, <laughs> the service road, <laughs> and everybody says, this is the year, this is the year, and first 15 years, the writers voted on it, and then there was this committee and that committee, and now there's been different varieties of eras of the game. But yeah, I think all of my accomplishments probably add up to the Hall of Fame and all the gentlemen and women, Claire Smith for journalism, deserve it. But I think the next one's going to be basically about the 70s. And I think I had a pretty good 70s. And God willing, it'll happen. 
Yeah, great. And I know from day one in the big leagues, you always were community-minded, even back when being community-minded wasn't in style. And where did this calling come from? Well, I think it was from sitting on that bench growing up and watching these boys of summer who didn't play for a whole lot of money. They played for the love of the game. It was a job, especially the Dodgers. They lived in Brooklyn in the offseason. They got jobs there, and then they'd go to spring training and start all over. And to listen to them and what they were doing, great family men and great Catholics and Protestants and so forth. And then once I, I started to see what you could do with this one great gift that you're given and that you can make a difference by your name and your visibility. I started getting involved in charities, disease-related, educational, and over the years probably been involved with 20-plus organizations from originally MS, ALS, uh, diabetes, been on the board of University of San Diego and Catholic University and a number of them. But the ability to, to have a voice and to give back has been something very special for, for the Garvey family. And we'll continue to do that. And I think uh, to be able to affect lives and to be able to get people to collaborate, to, to stand up and, and make a difference, everybody can, I think is something that's part of my DNA now. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned MS and not, not to age you. But as I read, you succeeded Frank Sinatra as the multiple sclerosis chairman. So that's that's a long history. That's right. And I, I think I could hit the high notes better than Frank. That's for sure. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's right. That's, you know, and it was kind of neat. And Frank obviously lent his name. And, but I was able to actively go to Washington for MS on an annual basis. And ALS, too, on advocacy days where you... You get the opportunity to talk to congressmen and congresswomen and senators and talk about bills so that more money can be spent on finding cures for these diseases. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Lou Gehrig's disease and you being associated with Lou with the streak and Major League Baseball now is going to celebrate that day this Friday, like they annually, like they do with Jackie's Day. So tell us about what's upcoming for people to expect and your involvement and to help with this awareness of this disease. Yeah, you know, June 2nd is uh, Lou Gehrig Day, and I'm fortunately one of the ambassadors, and I will be at Dodger Stadium. It's a big weekend there, Dodgers-Yankees. In a pregame ceremony, we will have some ALS patients there and their families, and it'll be a chance to talk briefly about ALS, and I will talk about Lou Gehrig and his contribution to the game and society, and, and of course, his name is so directly connected with ALS. And throughout baseball, they will be over the next 10 days, because a lot of teams are on the road, there'll be celebrations at the home ballparks. So this is the beginning of Lou Gehrig Day. There's a wonderful Roberto Clemente Day on September 15th, and of course, Jackie Robinson Day on April 15th. So baseball is doing a wonderful job in celebration of the wonderful gentlemen that are the authors and poets of the game. Yeah. You also have been the chairman of the board for Fans for the Cure, a nonprofit that seeks to increase awareness for prostate cancer. Tell us a little bit about that work you've done. Well, seven years ago, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Dr. Mark Litwin is chair of urology at UCLA. Went to him. My wonderful wife, Candace, asked the first nine questions, <laughs> as our wives and significant others always do. And then Mark looked at me and said, do you have any questions? And I said, what would you do? And he said, Steve, I'm 55 at the top of my game. Let's take it out. You're still a young man. 
and that happened and through the grace of God from cancer free. And I decided to be a, a foot soldier for the the movement to find the cure for prostate cancer. And I remembered Ed Randall, a great sports announcer, and he's on Sirius Radio and had a great show, Talking Baseball in New York. I had started a foundation called Fans for the Cure. And I called Ed up and I said, I want to be a foot soldier in your army. And he said, you're on the board. I said, okay, <laughs> when's the next board meeting? He said, two weeks. So went to two board meetings and then I was ceremoniously made chairman. And ever since, Michael Milken has the, the Prostate Foundation out of Los Angeles, and they're heavily vested in research. Fans for the Cure is about awareness, and we're in over 100 major league and minor league stadiums and arenas with other sports, too, every year, teaching men and women about prostate cancer, about early detection and the high rate of success and cure. So we're more the, the boots on the ground awareness, uh, and along with Michael Milken and other foundations, we're making great strides. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, we came together for the dedication of our latest Leroy Neiman Art Studio at Brazil Youth Center in Los Angeles. First, tell us about your personal relationship with our dear friend Leroy. Well, it was 1971, and I was still, uh, you know, trying to find my way. I was on the, the Dodgers major league team and playing some third. It was probably a May ninth, maybe early June. And uh, batting practice, I looked and I, and I had known a little bit about Leroy and his art. And I said to myself, that's Leroy Neiman. And I went over and I said, Mr. Neiman, Steve Garvey, and, you know, on the team, he says, oh, I know, Steve, how are you? Great. And I said, I've, I've got my first serograph of yours. He said, you do? I said, yeah, it's one of the horse pictures. He loved to paint horses. And I said, would you do me a favor? And he said, what is it? I said, I'm starting at third tonight. Would you just do a pencil sketch? It would be my most prized possession. Said, oh, sure. So um, the game starts and he's down in the well, the corner of the dugout. And, you know, I'm out there and by the third inning, he's kind of still there. And, and fourth inning starts, I look, he's gone. I thought, well, it's just great to meet him you know, and to see him. And, and I'd asked him, by the way, what, what he was doing. He was working on a coffee table book of stadiums in, in arenas. So after the game, I go to my locker and I put my glove and I look and there's a, one of the tubes and I opened it up and there was this parchment with me kind of at a side angle from behind, like I'm smoothing out the dirt in front of me. And it was charcoal. And I just stood there and looked at it and the guys were going, what's that guy? I said, Leroy Neiman did a one of a kind of me. And they go, wow, that is fabulous. And that became the beginning of a relationship with Leroy over the years and went to his studio many times. And of course, probably have 30 of his pieces along with an original serigraph of me swinging, which he always said was his favorite baseball one because he could depict my forearms, make them bigger than they normally are. But uh, he was quite a gentleman. And I think he defined, you think of him as a sports artist, but he was much more than that. And the collaboration with you and him, I think, is phenomenal. And to have been with you a few weeks ago at the Youth Center and see that new room, that art room there, and the inspiration of having it was Jackie Robinson and Fernando and, and myself and I think Sandy Koufax up on the wall, it made me stop a minute and look at it and think how much pride I have in having built the relationship and maybe in some ways talking about his art. And now the ability for the foundation to give back in collaboration with you, I think, is a wonderful journey. Yeah. And what I like, because you've done 
thousands and thousands of these events as your work continues and all the work you do with the Dodgers and on your own. But you were genuinely moved that day, which I, I loved. You know, it wasn't, it was just very authentic, your feelings there that day with the children. And so I love that, that it still moves you to this day to be involved in community events like that. We're putting a twinkle in the eyes of these children. We're giving them, you know, a place to go, a skill to develop, and a chance for them to feel worthy, feel accomplishment. And I celebrate you and everybody that works with you and your future. And and if I can obviously help, I always will. But that's what life is all about. It's about youth, about development. Those that are less fortunate have a place to go, and, and you're doing exactly that. Yeah, I told the story that day growing up in Southern California and loving the Dodgers and, and then loving Leroy Neiman's art and had a passion to get into baseball. And I landed a scouting job with the San Francisco Giants to be their scout in Southern California. I get my apartment. I want to put a Leroy Neiman on my wall. I can't afford a serigraph and original, but I know there's posters. So I went up to the Rose Bowl swap meet where there was a vendor who sold posters. And I agree, his best baseball piece of all time, people should look it up on the internet, is of the one Steve Garvey. The swing is just perfect. So I buy the Steve Garvey Dodger poster to put on the wall of the San Francisco Giants scouting wall. So, so much for the rivalry. I know when my boss came, my boss came to visit, he kind of shook his head, but I said, hey, it's art, it's Steve, it's, it's just baseball. And I, I, I just love that image of him and, and never get old looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I kept my head down and I think I hit a line drive to right, which, uh, you know, <laughs> was always what I tried to do. <laughs> yeah. But he also, you know, he has his personality too. And, and that's what happens in the art world and entertainment. He had the mustache and he had the little thin cigar sometimes. And, uh, but he probably was the most prolific artist in our generation or country, at least. I mean, the thousands of things he did. And of course, Mara, who runs the foundation, Poor thing, she comes in. She's not much of a sports fan, and she has to go through all the, all the uh, paintings and and serographs through the years and figure out who those guys are. Yeah, <laughs> in New York, you can get some accomplished sports people to come in and and tell you. So she's had quite a, a learning curve. Well, it was great that you were there. We've done numerous of these Leroy Neiman Studios over the years, and to have someone who's actually on the wall of a studio who and you sign the picture to be there in person also it just really brought it full circle so congrats on all you do and thank you for your all your community work you're pulled in a lot of different directions but you always make time for everyone which i certainly appreciate so thank you steve for your time today thank you thanks for your friendship and uh, to be continued for sure we hope you've enjoyed another episode of the Good Tidings Podcast, hosted by Good Tidings Foundation founder, Larry Harper. For more information on all the good we're doing, go to goodtidings.org.